Section 11 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 King Silas. Smiling, blue eyed Silas Wright had cautioned the anti renters that they would get no relief from him until they abandoned politics. It must have been a temptation to many of the farmers to withdraw from their local associations for the Democrats gave them every reason to understand that by doing so they could win substantial concessions individually and collectively. Instead, recognizing the danger of abandoning political union for any such temporary advantage, they called their first state political convention. Fifteen days after Wright became governor, 150 delegates from 11 counties assembled in the Lutheran Church at Bern, Albany County. These self-reliant and determined men traveled across the mountains over snow-piled roads, some coming from as far as Otsego and Sullivan counties, to repudiate the aristocratic tradition and write an anti-rent platform conforming to the spirit of American progress and shaped by the genius of democracy. From New York City came Thomas Ainge DeVere, George Henry Evans, and Alvin Earl Bovey to put in a word for freedom of the public domain. Horses crowded every stable and shed in the hill town. There was scarcely room in the church for all the delegates, much less the spectators. The overflow sought the glowing warmth of neighborhood kitchens, or stood about the churchyard in little knots, earnestly debating the issues to be decided. The convention was opened by Dr. Frederick Crowns of Gilderland Township, an anti-renter of long standing, whose horse and gig were known throughout the Helderbergs. There was none of the fanfare of the ordinary political convention, and none of the bargaining for political plums behind the mask of patriotic oratory. When Dr. Crowns reminded the delegates that the revolution had been fought to free men from just such tyranny as still bound the Hudson Valley tenants, his words were greeted with warm cheers, but he quickly went on to the business of the day. Hugh Scott of Westerlow, who was secretary of the first anti-rent meeting in 1839, was elected president of the convention, and David L. Sternberg, the postmaster of Livingstonville, was made vice president. Special committees, speedily appointed, were already in session by the time John Mayhem of Blenheim Hill made the keynote address. In the absence of Dr. Boughton, the most eloquent of the local spokesmen for free soil, that issue was passed over, and the more conservative anti-renters dominated the convention. The delegates drafted an appeal to the public not to condemn them unheard, the farmers would welcome correction, they said, if any of their demands were incompatible with the constitutional principles of a free people. But they wondered why the richest men in the community contributed no taxes toward the support of the very government which enforced all claims in their favor, and closed all avenues of redress to the tenants, as if they were mere vassals of a liege lord. As for charges of violence, they disclaimed any responsibility for the masked warriors, and accused Governor Wright of punishing all tenants for the sins of a few. To Wright and all politicians, they served notice that they would no longer resort to force and disguise, but would continue using the ballot to enforce their demands. 
These demands were, specifically, three legislative enactments. Revocation of the special rights by which the landlord sat as judge, prosecutor, and jury in any cases involving rent, the right to challenge the landlord's title, and taxation of the landlord's rents and other reservations. Before they turned their horses toward home, copies of the resolutions and speeches, and a list of the Democrats who were delegates or members of the anti-rent state committee, were rushed defiantly to Silas Wright to give him something to ponder over. When other copies reached the newspapers, the public was so favorably impressed by the reasonable attitude of the Byrne Convention that the landlord apologists hastened to try to counteract the effect. Someone who called himself Justice wrote a series of letters to the local papers in which he described the resolutions as remarkable for little else than their bad English, and the tenants' appeal for a fair hearing as cool impudence. The resolutions he charged were filled with ear-tickling words to excite prejudice. Thickly woven in and out are such phrases as subservient vassal, liege lord, oppressed tenant, noble landlord, humble tiller of the soil, words that appeal to the very passions and feelings which in the French Revolution made the word aristocracy a death warrant. Within a week after the convention, the anti-renters realized that Governor Wright had set his mind irrevocably against any appeal, however reasonable. On January 21, 1845, Dr. Boughton's lawyers secured from Supreme Court Commissioner Russell Dorr of Hillsdale, Columbia County, an order directing Sheriff Henry Miller to bring the doctor to Hillsdale for a hearing, and to show why he should not be admitted to bail. The order created consternation among the landlords and the politicians. Agitated officials sent urgent word to Silas Wright, District Attorney Theodore Miller and other responsible citizens of Hudson hastened to warn Dorr that there was a tenant plan to rescue Boughton as soon as he reached Hillsdale, which would probably result in a disastrous loss of life. Dorr refused to rescind the order, but met the spurious riot warnings by making the writ returnable in the Hudson courthouse instead of at Hillsdale. When the couriers reached Albany with the news, Governor Wright peremptorily removed Dorr from office, appointed a more tractable successor, and summoned the Senate into night session for an immediate confirmation. As John Van Buren had just become Attorney General, his appointment confirmed by a one-vote margin, the Governor dispatched him to Hudson with the ouster order, along with word that the Albany Republican artillery was to remain in Hudson until further notice in case the farmers should try to storm the town. The governor also instructed the Albany Burgesses Corps to be ready to return to Hudson at a moment's notice. Public revulsion against Wright's action was immediate. Even the Democratic Argus, which at first acclaimed Dorr's ouster, was obliged to back water. The editor, Edwin Croswell, admitted that a responsible source in Columbia County had advised him to retract his insinuation that Dorr was party to a plot to liberate Big Thunder. The statement from his responsible source, which he printed in full, reported that the removal of Dorr had caused widespread, deep, and almost unanimous feelings of indignation. Spurred by the governor's subversion of the most elementary of constitutional rights, 
the anti-renters began to demand an elective judiciary. Silas Wright had given conclusive evidence of the extent of political corruption in the courts. Former Commissioner Dorr affirmed that for discharging his constitutional duty, he was accused of lending himself in his office to the anti-renters. If such assertions are any evidence of the disposition that rankles in the hearts of those who style themselves the friends of law and order, he declared indignantly, I can say that I would more willingly entrust my rights in the hands of even the calico anti-renters than with such barbarian gentlemen, who wield the tongue and pen with as little honor and veracity as an Indian would a tomahawk and scalping knife. Although not himself an anti-renter, Russell Dorr accepted an invitation to address the next Columbia County anti-rent meeting. Whatever personal sacrifice may grow out of the compliance, he wrote the committee, I will not deny myself the pleasure of addressing the meeting. Please accept for yourself and those you represent the assurance of my affectionate regard. The meeting was held at Churchtown, almost in the shadow of Widow Mary's place, the huge white-pillared mansion built by Henry W. Livingston. Unexpectedly, Dorr made a strong avowal of sympathy for anti-rentism, which put new heart in the farmers. He advised against further rioting, on the realistic ground that it had thus far proved a tower of strength for the landlords. It gives the public press occupation to record outrage after outrage, he said, causing the mass of people to recoil with horror and disgust. Then, as if speaking directly to Silas Wright, but, while I exhort the people to perfect obedience to the laws, I would warn those whose duty it may be to execute them in such a manner as to teach the humanity and necessity of their provisions. I would wish those officers would remember that in our government laws, however just, may fail in their object if they be administered in a manner to make them obnoxious to the public. And above all, I would have them know and feel that punishment for the violation of laws is to be inflicted for the prevention of crime, and when it is instigated by any other designs, it is destructive and hellish in its character. In reference to the past, I cannot say less. As to the future, a revolution was at hand, Dorr warned, unless the government awoke to the evils being rooted in the soil. I may be told that to entertain such opinions is agrarian and leveling, he said. If it be such, I glory in my convictions, and if this declaration be degrading to the ears of the aristocrats, such ears would hear the dying groans of suffering without an emotion. Such a body would feed and fatten upon his race. He would almost drink the blood of his countrymen." Not long after this speech, Russell Dorr became an anti-renter. Political crucifixion of an honest liberal, whose loyalty to the elementary principles of justice was higher than any party loyalty, had forced him inescapably into the radical ranks. But Silas Wright continued to pursue his unenlightened course. Despite the absence of Indian demonstrations or any other show of force to warrant it, he asked the legislature for a law making it illegal to appear in disguise and armed, or to refuse to help an enforcement officer in the discharge of his duties. The law was promptly enacted, with little opposition from the anti-rent members of the Assembly, 
and on January 28, 1845, just thirteen days after the Berne Convention had directed the anti-renters to lay aside their tin horns and calico, the governor signed it. The effect on the tenant farmers was exactly what Wright might have expected. They were angered because he had ignored their honest effort to disband the Indians, and more than ever they were determined to resist every attempt to destroy their political unity. Although violence was obviously what the governor wanted from them, they brought the calico out of hiding, and once more broke the silence of the hills with blasts of the horns. Nevertheless, the farmers could not give up hope that their representatives in the legislature would be able to do something for them. On February 7, 1845, delegates from the eleven anti-rent counties met in Albany to pool petitions signed by 25,000 tenants, asking for the passage of the three measures put forward at the Berne Convention. Twenty-five thousand voters, they thought, could not be ignored. The legislature was less impressed than the farmers had hoped. Again, as in 1844, the tenant petitions were referred to a select committee. But this time the committee was unsympathetic. After due consideration, they reported that the only possibility for relief lay in negotiation and compromise with the landlords, that there was no reason why farmers should claim the aid of the legislature any more than any other class of men and the laws they demanded would not only be of doubtful expedience, but an outrage upon the rights of the citizens. In spite of the committee's report, Ira Harris rose to introduce the tenant legislation, whereupon Horatio Seymour came down from the Speaker's desk to berate him. "'You ought to be ashamed to introduce such a bill,' he cried. "'It is a disgrace to any legislator.' It took all the courage Harris possessed to face the abuse— but he held the floor long enough to castigate Governor Wright for not recognizing the tenants' grievances. "'Woe to my country,' the anti-rent assemblyman chided, "'when her laws must be sustained with the point of a bayonet. We shall indeed have fallen on evil times when our laws cannot appeal by their justice and equality to our citizens for support.' His appeal fell on deaf ears, the friends of King Silas, as the tenants now called him, proved too numerous for the anti-renters, and the bill was defeated. End of section 11. Recording by Maria Casper.